Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. Welcome, everybody, to the Reorient Podcast. Today is December 22nd, 2021. I am sitting here with Mr. Andrew Lung, who is an expert in all things China. He has a very long and rich experience advising the Hong Kong government in various aspects and also representing Hong Kong overseas. He's also advised many corporations and other types of organizations on China and beyond. And he has his own consulting business. We have posted all of this information on our website. You can access, including how to contact him. So with that, Andrew, welcome to the Reorient podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'd like to just start. You have, a, I think, a unique background as someone who's from Hong Kong and you were very involved in Hong Kong affairs from the beginning. Could you give our audience just a little uh, sense for how you became a very renowned China strategist? Well, actually, as the host introduced me, I started my career firstly in the Hong Kong government, holding a number of very senior positions, including assistant financial secretary and also director general of social welfare and also Director General London. If Hong Kong was a country, I would have been called an ambassador. And during those 38 years, you know, so I've uh, amassed quite an extensive experience covering uh, some periods during which China was in turmoil. For example, Tiananmen Square. At that time, I was Deputy Director General of Industry, already quite well known because I appear on the media quite regularly in those days. I was invited to visit the United States after Tiananmen Square. That was in 1990. I could only make it in the summer because I had a job to do. As I was given uh, the opportunity to suggest whom I would like to meet, and I said, the very top people in American corporate businesses. Well, that meant Fortune 50 companies. Some, most of these companies are bigger than some countries. And I said, well, the top people in the Fortune 50. I was lucky enough in the summer to be able to meet Steve Forbes himself, together with his managing editor in his office in the Fifth Avenue. And also I met the, the deputy chairman of Philip Morris, and some very senior executives in even military establishment like Lumen uh, or Allied Signals, and also the top oil companies in Dallas and Houston. So with these companies, if you just repeat things in the Financial Times or Economist, you, you, you'll be ushered out of the room very, very quickly. Suffice it to say that I had a passion for strategic matters. In other words, what drives the trend rather than the daily happenings, sort of what's, what's being reported every day. For example, in the recent uh, US-China, I started off with a trade war and now it's mowing into something much, much bigger across the board. So I, I like to study the, the ins and outs. And I was also, I gave a lot of presentations in international conferences, including Turkey, Istanbul, and also Morocco, Africa. And, and I, of course, kept up um, with what's happening and interact with a lot of international experts and took part in a lot of interesting platforms. Like, for example, there was a recently established online virtual think tank, a strategic think tank called Wikistrat. You know Wiki? You know Wikimedia? Yes. Strat, new strategy. So I, I was uh, invited as a senior analyst and uh, took part in war games and simulations. They're not, pay, uh, not paid, 
But actually, but it was very, very interesting because we'd be able really to be able to be on top of things. That's what drives me. So I'm, I have two children, all grown up now. So I'm free to do what I have a passion to do. My son is now all, almost, you know, 40, 43. My daughter is also 40. Both are happily and you know, living and working in London. I've got two grandchildren. Very nice. Well, as I said, I think you are uh, eminently qualified on on many matters, particularly things related to China and strategy in Hong Kong. And so I'm looking forward to a very uh, productive and insightful conversation. I guess my first question, just related to your, your background and experience, do you feel that Western companies, American companies, institutions, have they been given over the decades, let's say going back to the 70s when China was reopening up to the rest of the world, have they been given enough sufficient, accurate information to understand China, what's happening in China, what China's intentions are from people like yourselves and your peers? Or do you feel that they've actually been operating in the dark somehow? Well, I think that most of these companies are quite clear-eyed because most of them are on the ground in China. Some have been in China for a long, long time. And they learn from their own experiences. And then companies like uh, Walmart and also car companies, uh, not only from the United States, from and also from France, Bouchard, for example, lost the plot, for example, to the German car firms at Volkswagen. For example, Volkswagen understood China at that time better than Bouchard. Bouchard thought that, well, all I need was to bring some cars and you manufacture that. In fact, I wouldn't bring along the top of the line uh, technology to China and then uh, even some substandard engines because uh, China was struggling with developing their automobile industry. But uh, Volkswagen was very, very focused and hoped to bring something solid to the Chinese government. They look at the ground and say, well, you don't, you didn't have a, even a taxi fleet. So why can't I start a taxi fleet for you in Shanghai? And by the way, I'm prepared to build a taxi for you in China, creating all the jobs for you, bringing in, in sort of technology for these taxis uh, and also training your people so that you can start, eventually start uh, your own industry. So that's a, a different uh, kind of take. And those were the go-go days, as it were. And everything, you know, China was a kind of bonanza. And with all the, the drawbacks and so forth, and the people were quite clear-eyed. I think nowadays, the situation is somewhat different because we, we are now uh, facing China 3.0. What does it mean? China as a 1.0 is when uh, Mao Zedong helped China stand up in the world. Don't forget China suffered from almost a cent of drawbacks and pushback and, and abject poverty, foreign uh, invasion, famines, civil war. So, and the whole of the Chinese people, according to the Chinese saying, were just like a basin of set loose sand. There was no cohesion. There was no sense of pride in the nation. And Mao Zedong, in spite of his later you know, quite severe and uh, policies and so on and so forth, and internal gang fight with his rivals, managed to unite the whole country together. So he enabled China to stand up as well. So there's China 1.0. China 2.0 as well with Deng Xiaoping. So Deng, knowing that China was so poor, the only way is to open up. The only way is to mix capitalism with communism or socialism. So uh, the idea was to let a few people get rich first. And that's what it did. And China never looked back to such an extent that now China is a very unequal society. And the Gini coefficient 
is even more severe than the United States. And a, a small a percentage uh, of the people controls a vast among the wealth. So that creates a kind of discontent that creates a potential time bomb. And hence, under Xi Jinping, the call for common prosperity, to share the cake, to make the society less unequal, and to clamp down on monopolies, you know, big companies like uh, Alibaba and Tencent, in spite of their being a key driver to China's uh, economy. And of, of course, this current uh, standoff with the United States brings forth another dimension. When China was poor, a lot of the Western companies were relocating, taking advantage of China's very cheap labor, cheap land, and an exploding, although nascent, internal market. So they were all coming in drones. There was no looking back. And also, to, together with a lot of the polluting industries, requiring a lot of energy input. And of course, at the time, there was no, not much, um, even natural gas, let alone renewables. So China relied on, on coal. In spite of the pollution, China bought it because that was necessary to grow the, jo- the jobs, to keep this vast masses of people employed. But, and then, of course, um, at that time, the United States uh, saw an advantage in bringing China to its camp because at the time, during the Cold War with the former USSR, so under President Nixon, there was a, a secret visit to see Mao Zedong, promising Mao Zedong that a seat in the United Nations, ditching Taiwan at the time, in the, in, in the belief that, that China would be wooed away from Russia. At that time, there was already a breakup between the relationship between China and Russia anyway, because in the beginning, early days of Mao Zedong, Russia supplied a lot of the technology. And then after a while, there was a disconnect between how Mao saw the development of the communist movement and what I think at that time was Khrushchev saw how the Soviet movement around the world should take place. So the two countries broke up and President Nixon saw the opportunity. And through Henry Kissinger, the relationship between the two countries were restored with the result of the so-called one China policy. And then the rest is history. You're familiar with that. But now things are very different because at that time, China was not challenging Americans' leadership in technologies. And now China was seen to be eating Americans' lunch in 5G, you know, sort of in e-commerce and even in state-of-the-art technologies in the military field. And President Xi saw the time for China has come because, as I mentioned, China 3.0 encompasses the wish of national unification, including Taiwan eventually. Uh, the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China, which is 2049. Uh, so by that time, President Xi has repeatedly said China wants to become an advanced, modern, socialist country, maybe uh, also even a greener China. But uh, uh, a key part of the aim uh, is to unify China. And of course, the China has already taken over, taken back uh, Hong Kong and Macau with the ending of the so-called unequal treaties, ceding uh, these territories to foreign forces. And Taiwan was seen to be uh, the leftover of this kind of period when China, the sovereignty, or, or not sovereignty, administration over a part of its integrated territory. Don't forget, in the eyes of Beijing, Taiwan has always been part of China. And in fact, as a, a student of Chinese history, the history of Taiwan could be traced back thousands of years. 
during the dynasties, during the Ming Dynasty, for example, it was established administration in Taiwan. The difficulty is that, of course, after all these years, a lot of the Taiwanese people don't regard themselves as as mainlanders, and a lot of them are also indigenous people. And of course, Taiwan is seen by the United States as an unsinkable aircraft carrier to contain China. So you can see the situation is very different. So coming back to your question, there's a long answer. Some businesses just focusing on uh, what's in front of them, maybe uh, within 100 yards. And even countries like the United States and some Western countries, they don't really understand the real psyche of China. That's where I come in. Okay, great. That is a long answer. And we've got so many topics to get through. I think each one would deserve a very long answer. I think this may be a great place to start. Can you explain to us what is China's political and economic system? The country is still ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. It's a one-party rule. The state has a very uh, important role in all facets of life and the economy. What exactly is it and what what countries would be similar in terms of the model that, that China has? There is no... There is no no comparison with any other country. The Chinese Communist Party in in this government of China is unique. China is unique because China accounts for one fifth of mankind, twenty percent of the world population, and is an ancient uh, civilization dating back thousands of years and a surviving civilization. Unlike the early, for example, Grecian civilization, which has changed. Uh, a lot. The distinction is that the there is a, of course, a, a, a kind of debate whether one uh, party. A, a party rule is necessarily inferior. Maybe you're coming around to it, but right. is it a socialist country, a mm-hmm. communist country? What, what we could say this country is a dictatorship. This country is a socialist democracy. This country is a liberal democracy or li- illiberal democracy. If we want to just use that framework to look at countries' political economic systems, where does China fit? I know it's unique, but where on the spectrum? Spectrum, well, should people think about you, it? You should, I think the people should think about China as a civilization. It's a civilization that is always changing and in keeping with the times, as it were, for better or for worse. And, and at the end of the day, whether you call the democracy or authoritarian regime, and, and you use the word democracy, there are so many so-called democracies around the world. At the end of the day, does the government want to achieve? According to Beijing, you need to look at the final results. Regardless of the system, at the end of the day, are the most of the people involved, their lives are getting better. It's their aspirations that they are proud of, of the development. So you've got to look at the final results rather than the process. And I think the Western kind of uh, theory concentrates on process, provided you have an election, no matter who is going to be elected, you respect the result, even though the result is going to bring disaster to your country and to other countries as well. Right, so that's that. Uh, I think the West tends to to focus on process, whereas the uh, China focuses on the outcome, the aggregate how, outcome for the country. Now, according to the Harvard Kennedy School report, which was out only about six months ago, looking at how peoples around uh, support their their governments, regardless of the regime. Of course, they look at China, they look at the United States and a lot of Western countries. That's the Harvard Kennedy School, the Ash Center report out about six months ago. And China got a top rank in terms of support of most of the people. Why? Because for the past 40 years, there has been a sea change in China, economically and people's daily lives and even people's freedom. Previously, people were not even allowed to choose their own work. Now, you can see Chinese tourists all over Europe, 
all, all the United States, all over the world. And people feel that their lives are better, even though they do not have the same sort of freedom, with, even with, within quotation marks, because some, some of the freedoms are even suppressed in the United States. For example, you, it would be to, to talk about, to criticize Israel, for example, in the United States. So each country has a, its own kind of red lines or sensitive points. And that's what, the, what Beijing has been saying all the time. Okay. Well, I think your answer is very interesting because I think it does highlight why many people are confused by China because we don't seem to be able to use the language in a common vernacular as a political economist or something that we want to understand something by characterizing it, giving it a certain quality. And anyway, your answer, I think, highlights some of the, the challenges that we face. So you mentioned the polling, and I think it's very clear to most people that watch China that the government enjoys a very high level of favorability among its population. It's clearly supported for all the reasons that you mentioned. But I, I would want to ask, though, how much can we trust the polls in China? How much confidence can we have well, in something like polling data coming out of well, China? Well, I'm not talking about the polls con- conducted by the Chinese government or by Chinese think tanks even. I'm talking about the polls. They have a proprietary kind of study methods and, and also kind of a proprietary statistical uh, methods using telephone and also sometimes off-the-cuff interviews because that's by even by PEW based in Washington, D.C., the report I was referring to was from the Harvard Kennedy School, the Ash Center. You know, they don't copy, they don't just uh, swallow all the data in China. They've been conducting these polls for many, many decades. China has always been quite higher up in, in terms of the support since the, the founding of the People's Republic of China. Of course, there was some backward, some kind of drawbacks, like after Tiananmen Square, or, or especially during the early years when China was in abject poverty. But anyone who has been to, to China, especially those who have been uh, to China before and after the reforms, will find that China's now completely changed the society, the economy. But of course, the Chinese government still maintains tight control because they, they do not want the kind of drawbacks as they see them from the West, because the, the West is also seized by this party politics, especially the extreme case is in the United States, when the two parties were at each other's throats. And the, and the party would only focus on their next election. So even though there are some long-term measures, but both countries would try to pick holes, and oftentimes it comes to the gridlock. The only consensus in the United States is China is a demon. I think there is no doubt about it. Both parties uh, agree with that. Because as I said, they're very different from the Nixon administration times. The United States sees its uh, dominance challenge. It's, in fact, United States prides itself as a, a city on a hill, and then American is exceptional country, and it just can't understand and, and you will not tolerate a challenger from a perceived authoritarian regime, especially from a different civilization, apart from the fact that they, most people don't really understand China. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast, and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.